Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers and become better. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Welcome to Countrywide. I'm Fiona Broom, coming to you from Gunai Kurnai country in Victoria's east. I can smell it, Han. I can smell these durians. We're standing in front of a trailer packed with your durians. Tell us what's in front of us here. Oh, we've got some spiky fruit that smells awesome when you walk up to the shed. This <laughs> morning was very fragrant. I could smell it from a mile away. And when you get closer, uh, the, the salvation starts with the mouth starts drooling. Well, it's the fruit that divides opinion, but it's still building a profile here in Australia. I'll have more for you on durian season ahead on the show. As we see those figures change, again, I would like to see those prices come down for consumers. I think all of us understand that Australians are feeling real cost of living pressure at the moment. We've been doing what we can as a government, but you know, if we can do more around food and grocery prices for Australians, that'll really help a lot of family budgets too. And yes, lamb prices are finally coming down, but the National Agriculture Minister says there's still room for prices to fall even further. But let's start the show by taking a look at Australia's trade relations with China. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was in China earlier this week, marking the first visit by an Australian leader since 2016. The visit came as trade tensions between the two countries are relaxing, with China this year removing trade tariffs on Australian barley and now reviewing its tariffs on wine. Red meat and lobster sales have also been on the back burner for the past couple of years, but those industries could be next in line for some good news. Mr Albanese and Trade Minister Don Farrell were photographed at a trade expo in China holding up crustaceans for the camera. The word is the ban on Australia. Australian court craze is about to end. Here's the new CEO of the Rock Lobster Fisheries Association, Kylie Cahill. Our rock lobster fishermen, the commercial fishermen, have had a really rough time over COVID. Um, the China market disappeared overnight. At the time, the, the difference in prices, it went from $100 a kilo down to about $30 a kilo, which is a huge crash. We had fishermen, we've lost fishermen from the commercial industry uh, due to the financial pressures during COVID and with the Chinese closure. So we're cautiously optimistic that it's going to come back online soon. And we're certainly appreciative of, of um, uh, Mr Albanese and Mr Farrell's efforts in China. So you're hopeful that those tariffs might be negotiated away. Is there any prospect? I mean, obviously Christmas, a lesser market in China than, than Chinese New Year is. Are, have you got any information that might suggest those tariffs could be dropped for Chinese New Year? Uh, we don't, unfortunately, at this point. There is, there's been a lot of rumours with, you know, Chinese market maybe opening soon, and 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 that's happened a lot of times. But uh, it's very difficult, to, as you would understand, to run your business model on rumours. We've just been holding on, and and um, we're in contact with the national bodies, um, and they're certainly making uh, great efforts, working with the ministers and working with Mr Albanese to get this back up and running as soon as possible. What would it mean for local prices, Kylie? And I want to stress, you're new in the job. I know that in three weeks' time you'll be maybe more adept with some of the numbers around this than, than you are right <laughs> now. And I, yeah, I, and, and we totally understand that. But let's talk about local prices. So I remember Christmasing, uh, Christmasing 
in Queensland um, after these tariffs went in and everyone was talking about buying crayfish for the first time in years. It had become more affordable for Australians. Should we expect a dramatic escalation in prices locally if China reopens to the commercial fishers? When China closed, um, the drop meant that there was a lot more product available because there was, you know, there wasn't that sale overseas. I'm unsure as to when China would come back online, but certainly what the best thing for people to do is is to source, you know, the bargain to be had is to source crayfish from back of the boat sales, so off the boat sales at wharves. That's the best idea. But in terms of prices, I'm unsure, you know, where that's going to head or whether it'll reopen in time for Christmas or not. Christmas is only, what are we now, six weeks away. It's a very short time away. So unfortunately, I can't give you much more information on that one. That's Kylie Cahill speaking there with Leon Compton. And the red meat industry is also optimistic about future trade with China. Here's Patrick Hutchinson, the head of the Australian Meat Industry Council. We just finished our uh, very big uh, meat processing and export conference on the Gold Coast and we've had both um, uh, Murray Watt and Susan McDonald there, uh, as well as a lot of luminaries around China, including Stan Grant and Peter Harcher and Saul Eslake all pontificating around what could well happen in China geopolitically, security-wise, et cetera, and on trade. And so I think we're all on the conclusion, not only that the, the relationship now has strengthened to such a, a opportunity that it shouldn't be very difficult for us to turn uh, all of our systems back on. Beef and lobster are the only two really that are left. And turning back on beef is eight establishments and China already has all the information. So it's really about the bureaucracy being able to turn that back on. So politicians can shake hands, but bureaucrats are the ones that flick buttons. So we really need that to be happening as opposed to the handshaking. What have the last few years been like for those abattoirs that have been locked out of this trade? It's been exceptionally difficult, obviously, Matt. Um, it's not just been about being locked out of a market of that magnitude because um, you know, we are a very good uh, industry, a very sustainable industry. We are able to pivot exceptionally well. Markets were open to other abattoirs to be going to China. So, you know, with a dwindling supply and a massively world record high livestock price, it ensured that people were being quite choosy where they were putting product and putting it uh, and, and where they were going to market. So we were in some ways somewhat lucky to be in that position. However, you don't want to be losing market share. And uh, unfortunately, with those guys being out, Australia actually lost market share to our ally, the US beef industry. So it's now about that circle changing, that cycle is changing. They're going through what we went through three years ago. And as such, um, it's about our ability to take back that market share. So really, you know, they've been able to keep going. They've been able to withstand all of those pressures and they're ready to, uh, to to go back into that market. Because is it fair to say that if you just looked at the amount of red meat that's been exported to China this year, you'd be forgiven for thinking there's no ban in place at all? That's right. And and this is where the technical aspect of the, of the temporary suspensions has come, as opposed to really uh, the bans that we've seen elsewhere, whether it be on like on hay and timber, Ours is a technical nature which has uh, suspended um, in individual establishments, whilst other China-listed establishments have been able to, uh, uh, to, to you know, for want of a better term, fill the void. 
All of that being said, though, we do have an opportunity as well with the relationship strengthening the way that it is to also speak about hopefully post the switch being turned back on for those establishments that are suspended. Also now going back to the joint statement that we signed in 2017, which said uh, and uh, allowed for an extra 15 establishments in Australia to also have their licences actually created for China. That, in, that as well will help us in regards to getting further market share. How big has China become for Australia's red meat industry in the last five years or so? Oh, look, it, it's it's um, uh, certainly been an exponential growth. Um, I know the you know we had an eight year hiatus on our uh, meat process, processing export conference, um, and, in, and I can tell you back in 2015 when it was last held, as I'm led to be aware, the chat was about chapter the Chinese Australian Free Trade Agreement. That was it. This time around in 2023, it is all about China and the discussion around access and our ability to be able to get into back into China but also the geopolitical tensions, the relationships uh, and all of those things. Pre-COVID, we sent 300,000 tonnes of beef to China in 2019 on its own. But don't uh, ever mistake the fact that we uh, China still only makes up probably um, at, its, at its peak around about 28% of our total exports. So anyone who says we need to pivot away from China, we need to differentiate um, uh, isn't really understanding the markets or our supply chain at all because whilst we can differentiate for volume, we can't differentiate for value. So China also adds value to products that necessarily either have a lower value or don't have a value at all and uh, because of their consumption patterns and what they look to do and how they uh, look to consume things. So they are an exceptionally important market for us for a number of different reasons and some of those actually flow onto other markets, uh, and it's not just about China on its own. That's Australian Meat Industry Council CEO Patrick Hutchinson speaking there with Matt Bran. Still on red meat, and it's no secret that farmers have been receiving as little as $1 per kilo for some of their lambs at the sale yards, while consumers are paying more than 40 bucks a kilo for lamb cutlets. Well, Woolworths this week dropped the price for 26 Australian lamb products by 20%, but Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt told Warwick Long he wants to see retail prices fall even further. I certainly welcome that decision by Woolworths to pass on some of those savings to Australian consumers. I know when I go and buy my leg of lamb on a Saturday to make a roast, I've seen the price rise in recent years and months, and I think everyone has been going through the same thing. So to provide some cost of living relief in that way with lamb prices at the supermarket, I think will be really welcomed by Australian shoppers. Has it come um, too late, no... though? Because sale yard prices had fallen substantially in the months prior. Yeah, look, I, I think I really empathise with uh, sheep and cattle producers because we've seen prices for both commodities fall significantly in recent months. Uh, and I think it's been very frustrating to those producers to not see that reflected in supermarket prices. So over the last few weeks, I've actually been calling on the retailers to do the right thing. Um, but if prices are lower at the farm gate, then they should be reflected at the supermarket shelves as well. And, you know, I think we all recognise that there are additional costs incurred between the farm gate and supermarkets, transportation, 
processing costs, all those kind of things. But I think everyone was getting a bit jack of seeing such a big discrepancy between the prices farmers were getting and what they were having to pay at the supermarkets. So I'd now like to see the other big retailers join Woolworths and pass on those reductions. Uh, and, you know, without with, with any luck before too long, we'll see producers getting better prices as we work through the sort of oversupply um, that we're seeing in the market at the moment. Do you think you may have played a role in Woolworths' decision here? Oh, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to, to sort of claim that, Warwick, but, you know, I thought it was important as the Minister to deliver a message to the retailers that they do need to meet community expectations. You know, I think traditionally it's always been a few months between seeing livestock prices fall and, and seeing supermarket prices fall, but, you know, I, I was keen to use my position to put a bit of pressure on the retailers and I'm pleased that one of them's responded. As I say, I'd now like to see the other ones do the same thing. Woolworths are dropping the price by 20%. Indicators are around 40 to 50% lower than, say, their peaks in March earlier this year as well. Is there is there room for more price drops or price cuts at the retail yeah. level? Yeah, I think, I think there is, Warwick, as time goes on. And I think we recognise that um, the prices are being a bit held up at the retail level also by stocks uh, that are already held um, that, and forward contracts that retailers entered into with producers and processors when prices were higher. But as we see those figures change, again, I would like to see those prices come down for consumers. I think all of us understand that Australians are feeling real cost of living pressure at the moment. We've been doing what we can as a government in trying to pass on energy rebates and cheaper medicines, cheaper childcare, things like that. But, you know, if we can do more around food and grocery prices for Australians, that'll really help a lot of family budgets too. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt there. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Now, grains have also had a big week as Australia broke its wheat export records, which were only set last season. China edged ahead of traditional buyer Indonesia as Australia's biggest customer. And with harvest well and truly underway across the country, grain receivals doubled in just the past week. Trading company Grain Corp has received over 1 million tonnes of grain this harvest. CEO and Managing Director Robert Spurway returned from China this week and told reporter Ondine Slack-Smith he was happy to see better relations between the two countries. I think it's really important that the government is talking with the Chinese government. It supports the work that we're doing to build relationships between businesses uh, like ourselves in Australia and Chinese business. And really great to see that China has remained a really important customer for grain. Uh, but in particular with the removal of barley tariffs, that trade flow has started up again. And that means better barley for better beer in China. So that removal of barley tariffs, now that they've been removed, do you think they will return to the level that they were once at? We've already seen very strong demand with the first shipments leaving Australia uh, almost as soon as the tariffs were removed. Uh, So absolutely, we're very confident about that. I would add that we've seen strong demand from uh, Chinese buyers around wheat. Uh, So in many cases, they've found ways to offset the uses of the barley that was just too expensive under the previous tariff regime. Can you tell me what is the state of the current harvest? Harvest is starting to wind up very quickly. In New South Wales alone, we've received over a million tonnes this harvest. Half a million tonnes of that was just in the last week. 
As traditionally the harvest moves south across Australia, we'll see volume strengthen. We're looking at pretty strong crops in southern New South Wales and into Victoria, and Grain Corp set up for that. Uh, we've been working closely with growers. We've got our teams and equipment in place, and we're looking forward to harvest continuing over the next number of weeks. What do the tonnages received this season like so far look like? We're pretty happy. It's close to what we'd expect on the forecasts that we've seen from ABARES. And in fact, in some areas, we're seeing slightly stronger than expected yields. In particular, the quality is looking pretty good. So it's been a tough year for growers, particularly in the north of New South Wales, where everyone knows it's been drier. Uh, but southern New South Wales, central and southern New South Wales, and indeed Victoria, uh, is looking really good. So we're optimistic that's going to be a strong harvest and in the weeks ahead. Overall, as ABARES are predicting, we expect at least an average crop in, in this harvest. Grain Corp CEO Robert Spurway there. Well, they're tiny, green and salty. Harvest of caper buds is underway in South Australia and demand from restaurants for the local product is skyrocketing. Heidi and Dave Setchell from the Riverland have been growing capers alongside their jujubes and dates for almost a decade. Eliza Bellage visited their farm to learn about how these tiny green fruits are harvested. Yeah, we use pretty high-tech equipment out here. Um, yeah, I've got some industrial concreters knee pads they're a caper picker's best friend so the knee pads are pretty essential how long have you been picking this morning oh about two hours how many do you think you pick in two hours on a good day i can get close to about half a kilo um in an hour but yeah it averages just depending on you know what's on the plant ready to pick um you know probably only about 350 grams or so so yeah you're not talking big numbers and Dave was saying he reckons you're the better picker because you're ambidextrous. What's the sort of secrets to picking capers? How do you, yeah, what's the best way to pluck them? Oh, it's just, yeah, being able to use, like, both hands. Um, sometimes they're a bit, like, sticky on the plants, you know, so sometimes you have to hold the branch and pull off one at a time, which is, yeah, really slow. But if you can sort of hold do, two buds at a time and pick them, like, with both hands, it's quicker. You look like you're doing a bit of a twist there as you pick them off. Yeah, it's sort of a little bit. I mean, you just it's hard to explain like how it works, but yeah, you sort of just pick them right at the base of the um, little stem and just give them a little light snap. Some are easier to pick than others. Like there's actually quite a bit of variation in the bushes that we have here. Um, uh, these ones in this top row are especially bred caper plant called Eurekas. And they're always really nice to pick. So we tend to focus on these upper rows lot more than the lower ones. Yeah, they look a lot bigger than... I know in the supermarkets you can basically only get ones from from overseas. They look a bit bigger than that, don't they? Oh, they just... You grade them in different sizes. Um, Dave and myself tend to just pick... Try and pick the buds that are around the 5 to 8 millimetre diameter. There's a whole grading system of you know sized capers right up into these big ones but we yeah we don't really have a market for for those or we've never really like explored markets for them so we've just gone for the the mainstream size that you know chefs and um, people tend to to like to use if you go for real little baby capers um, they're very popular with chefs as well but they're under five mil in size and take an extremely long time to pick a kilo of those 
Black Sheep Produce co-owner Heidi Setchell speaking with Eliza Berlage. In the southeast of South Australia, Liz Crowley from Ananda Organic made the switch from garlic to capers six years ago. Liz explains how she found her initial customers and why she never needs to advertise her capers. Well, initially I was not stalked. <laughs> you could say that, but I used to, to I used to watch what was going online and and see what restaurants were out there. I mean, capers aren't a cheap crop, and they are cheap to buy imported. But the way we do them, it takes four hours to pick a kilo, so they're not cheap, but they're totally worth it. So I did. I found. I did see someone do a post on Instagram one day about a chef in Sydney, and all he focused on was fish. Now capers and seafood are a match made in heaven. So I thought I would reach out towards him and ask him if he would like me to send him a sample, and he said definitely. So I sent my sample off to him, and he was on the phone within a week telling me that they're the best thing he's ever tried and how could he get his hands on them. So basically, yeah, that was one of my very first customers. Once he was on board, and he's a very popular chef, he's just been named Australian Chef of the Year. Once he was on board and started posting some of my capers on his meals, I didn't have to reach out to any other customers. I was very lucky. To, to nail the good one in, on the head first stop. <laughs> so yeah, and then from now on, I've got a list, basically a list that I've got some chefs on my waiting list to be able to get on board. And we're hoping this year that we'll be able to supply a lot more people now that we've got a lot more bushes in. And we never knew that it would take off like it has, to be honest. So you just thought it might be a bit of a way to make a little bit of money and just a small focus and that's turned into something much more than that yeah yeah well this is our semi-retirement plan <laughs> so, so now it looks like we won't be going into semi-retirement anytime soon but um, at least if we can build it up to a lot more bushes and at the end of the day one day when we do want to retire and sell up then we'll have a, a, a pretty good established business with a good clientele so it's a lovely area we're in here, 10 minutes out of Narracourt. When you're spending those hours and hours harvesting, do you ever think about those high-end restaurants in places like Sydney and Melbourne where the capers end up and, and what's happening to them? Yes, I always think that we're the producer and the chefs are the creators and I love seeing what they do with our capers. They post a lot on Instagram. Yeah, but it's a thrill to see what um, see how they end up from a bush here in Narracourt and how they end up on a plate in Sydney. It's a, It's a work of art. That's Liz Crowley from Ananda Organic speaking with Elsie Adamo. And it's harvest time in the Northern Territory for what's regarded as the world's smelliest fruit. I'm talking about durians, which are a large, spiky fruit with a smell so offensive that in some countries they're banned on public transport and in hotels. I personally love a durian, but they are certainly something of an acquired taste. Matt Bran visited Han Shang Sears Durian Farm for a sniff. I can smell it, Han. I can smell these durians. We're standing in front of a trailer packed with your durians. Tell us what's in front of us here. Oh, we've got some spiky fruit that smells awesome when you walk up to the shed. This <laughs> morning was very fragrant. I could smell it from a mile away. And when you get closer, uh, the, the salvation starts with the mouth starts drooling. <laughs> How do you describe the smell? Uh, it is a, uh, it's a mixture of... <laughs> Really strong garlic and, and, you know, a bit of old socks, but it's a very fragrantly pleasant smell for me. Some people say they have a little bit of sulfuric smell, like like maybe a leaking gas tap from a leaking gas bottle. 
<laughs> and and yeah, so it, it's it's for us and most Asian, it's it's a fragrance that we 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 would you know kind of linger towards and you know trace towards really quickly. It makes for a pungent shed, that is for sure. And these are some of your first for the season. They are tree ripened. Yep. How is your season shaping up this year? It started off looking great with great flowering this year in, in Jan- July. Um, and then when the weather got a little bit warmer than expected, a lot of it dropped. But we thought we didn't have much. However, we, uh, when, when the time grew and the fruit started getting bigger, we looked up. There was a lot more than we expected. So... We are looking at close to maybe 15 tonnes, so more than last year. And we've got one massive durian here. We weighed it earlier. Mm-hmm. Over three kilos. 3.8, I believe. 3.8. Yeah. Do they get much bigger than that? They do in, in other countries. I think the largest we've ever had was about four and a half. Uh, but yeah, this was a, a big boy or girl. <laughs> uh, she smells great. And yeah, I just picked it up this morning. I just drove past her and I was like, whoo, she's big. <laughs> and I went down and picked it up and tagged her. And where are all these durians off to? Uh, most of it will be going to Sydney and Melbourne in, on Wednesday onwards. And what are prices like for you? So our premium, premium grade durian is sitting at about $32 a kilo wholesale. So mark up anything beyond that is probably about close to $40, $45 at the retail. And our uh, normal durian is sitting closer towards about 20 to $22 a kilo. Okay. And just looking at these durians, I mean, they are big. They are so spiky and, and that famous smell. So I'm sort of just amazed at how some of them have clearly been attacked by birds. Yeah. What, what bird is getting through this ginormous spiky fruit? Uh, well, we've have getting sung a little bit more um, cockatoos and corellas, right. mostly cockatoos. I, I, I uh, attacking these. They just like to attack a particular variety, I guess, because it's more fragrant and a different smell smell than than the uh, the, the other durians. And unfortunately, it is our premium grade one that we, <laughs> that, we that we that we try to sell and promote. We're getting a fair more of that being attacked. Your best variety is, is the one they're targeting. Correct. They've developed a taste for your... Yes, nothing else, just that variety I've noticed, and unfortunately it's a bit annoying. How are they doing it? That's what gets me, because if I was a bird, I wouldn't want to sit on that fruit. It's so spiky. They have, I guess, steel of teeth, steel of mouth to bite through it. They are pretty ingenuous, and yeah, they they, they like to nibble here and there, and unfortunately they don't want to finish all fruit. Yep. Has this always been a problem, or just something that's... Just suddenly recently it's picked up. We noticed a little bit more last year. Um, and then this year again more. I guess because we had a farm down there that used to grow a lot of other melons, and they used to keep all the cockatoos and corellas down there during this time of the year, so we didn't have much of a bird problem. Once they switched that over... That melon to- farm's becoming a croc farm now. Yes, so, and- <laughs> so unfortunately, cockatoos and corellas don't like crocodiles, so, so, so they decided to uh, immigrate down to uh, neighbouring farms. And unfortunately, if they, some sign to liking taste to durian when there's nothing else left to eat. Wow. Yeah, because your mango season's done. Yes, our mango season done last week, and we're over it. We're so happy. That's very unusual for us, because we're generally juggling mangoes and durian at the same time. All righty, then. I think we've reached that time. This is, this, is, this is a story I get to do about once a year. Yep. Open up a durian. And, and let's see how long Matt survives without gagging. <laughs> All right, let's go get one. Hang on a second. There's a real secret, isn't there, to, to cutting them open? Yeah, there is. Uh, so there are dedicated lines here. They're like fault lines. So you can actually use a pair of knife, secateurs, or anything just to crack it open. So we'll grab it here. You see how soft it is? It's delicate. 
Can you grab a little segment and I guess tell our audience what makes durian special and what you look for in terms of flavour in durian? Okay. So for durian, we, we, generally it is quite soft. We, that's what you want to do, very soft. It also uh, has to be a very strong pungent smell. Like, and it's more of a, uh, like a uh, garlicky smell, oniony smell. So once we consume it, we eat it, uh, it, it, is, it is very... Um, I'll grab a piece too. Yep, ooh, yep here that. we go. So you eat it, <laughs> and it's... Um, yeah, so it has like that really oniony taste, really onion skin flavour. Um, it's got that sulfuric taste. And, and smooth. Smooth. It's very smooth, and it's very sweet. It's, the taste... Is very different to the smell. Yeah. It's a lot more like a custody. Dessert. That's why they put it in ice cream. Yes. But funny part, they also put it in hot pots. And and pizzas in some Asian countries. No no wonder the cockatoos. They've they've worked it out. They're picking the most expensive fruit in town. (laughs) Move over mangoes, move over rambutans and... Water apples, it's durian. <laughs> Always good to see you, Han. Thanks for sharing some durian. No, thanks. We'll finish this one off here. That's durian farmer Han Shang Sia. And that's Countrywide for this week. I'm Fiona Broom. Thanks for your company. You can find more news online at abc.net.au forward slash rural, or you can check out our Facebook page. Catch you later.